All right, well, good morning, everybody. Glad you all got to meet Loyal and say hi to everybody. And like I mentioned, we're going we're gonna to study God's prophetic word, part 12. I don't know what it means that I think next week will be the last message in this series, but I didn't want it to be part 13. Not that I'm superstitious or anything, but um, 13's a great number. 12's the number of the kingdom, so I was, I was kind of hoping the Lord would structure it so that 12 was the last, but... It didn't work out that way, but that's okay. We'll figure something out, and, but I am excited to dig into this today, so if, we, if you don't mind, we're going to open up in some prayer, and we always need to do that before we open God's word. So Lord, we just thank you so much again for this time together. God, I thank you for teaching us and setting in your word everything that we have to look forward to in you. God, we thank you that you are a God that tells us in advance what to expect, so that when we see all of this on the, on the horizon, God, that we don't have to be fearful, we know who wins in the end, and we know where our destiny is in you, in the kingdom, and to live in eternity with you in that new city, the new Jerusalem, and we thank you for that promise. We thank you that your word does not return void, and we pray that you would rest your spirit here. And teach us everything this morning, God. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, we are, we're going to study the characteristics of the millennium today. And so, as we've been going through this series, we, kind of, we started kind of all the way back in the church age. And if you remember this table, the creation of the church, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit... The, the church has been formed for about 1,991 years, and the history of the church was written in advance in the seven letters to the seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3, and they lay out the entire church history in advance where we are today, which is the church of Laodicea, the, the apostate church, the final church age. And when this church age closes, when that door closes, God will open a door, open the heavens, and we come home in the rapture. And that's all from 1 Thessalonians 4 and, and, frankly, all over the Bible. After the rapture, it gives way, the restraining Holy Spirit is removed, which gives way to the rise of the Antichrist out of ten kingdoms. And so if you remember, the ten kings are set up. He rises out of them, puts three of them down, and then the seven consolidate their power to him. He affirms a covenant with Israel from Daniel 9. And that starts the tribulation, the final seven years of human history before we return with Jesus, and he sets up the kingdom. The beast system that we're watching, we've been watching the setup for, for the last three or four years now, it consists of a glo global government, a one-world religion, controls all buying and selling, demanding worship or death. There's a false peace from 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Again, it rises up out of the ten kings. There's two leaders in the, in the tribulation, the Antichrist and the false prophet. The false prophet causes all of the world to worship the beast with lying signs and wonders. And if you don't worship, obviously you are, the penalty is death. And there's the final Gentile kingdom from Daniel 2 and 7. Frankly, it's a fear-driven governance. And as all of you know from three years ago, it was a fear-driven governance. Uh, the government tried to use fear to get a lot of people all over the world to do things they didn't want to do. And it's the same setup that you're seeing for the end times for that B system. Now, all of this, what the Lord so, whispered so softly to me was all of this, you're seeing this setup kind of through a glass wall. So we don't know how far we will get into that system that's being set up. All we're promised is we won't see the Antichrist and who he is when he takes full control of it. But it's starting to bleed over, right, some into our society. And so we just have to be ready for that. Well, when the rise of the Antichrist, he, he puts down three of the ten kings, power consolidates. The Antichrist affirms a covenant with Israel, and the tribulation begins. And the tribulation being a seven-year period that is the most documented period of time in the entire Bible, it's split into two groups of three and a half years, 42 months, or 1,260 days. In the middle of it, it's the abomination of desolation from Matthew 24 and Daniel 9. And the back half is what Jesus declared is the great tribulation from Matthew 24. After that, 
Jesus returns. And then there's a 75-day interval that we took a whole message on to study out of Daniel 12. The last three verses of the book of Daniel lays out a 75-day interval that Jesus has a lot of cleanup to do and a lot of things to take care of on the earth before the millennium begins. So then the millennium begins, and we studied last time the promise of the millennium. So where have we been in the study so far? We did a part one was an introduction to prophecy. We studied the 70 weeks of Daniel and the rapture. Part two was the Antichrist covenant that starts that. We studied in parts three and four the beast system, what it's about. Parts five and six, we studied the great apostasy and how the church ends as an apostate church that Jesus, frankly, is kind of disgusted with, that he wants to spew out of his mouth from Revelation 3. We studied then the supernatural intrusion and what was going on with Genesis 6 and why the Lord points us to as the days of Noah in Matthew 24. We studied our prophetic road ahead in part 8 and who wins, how is this set up, what really where does our hope lie, and what is the church, what should we as the true church uh, be doing as a result. And we looked at a lot of examples out of Acts of going toward the darkness, not fearing and cowering from it, but bringing the light to it. Part 9, we studied the return of the king, then the 75-day interval in part 10, the promised millennium. It's all over the Bible. Last week we looked at this from the Davidic covenant is where it started in 2 Samuel 7. And the promise of the millennium, the promise of Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth that the Lord promised David that somebody from his seed would sit on the throne of David forever. And that's Jesus. Uh, David is going to be resurrected again during the millennium to be the prince of Israel. And that's confirmed three or four times in the scripture between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But Jesus being the king of the earth. So today, okay, we're, we've gotten to that point kind of all through that. And today we're going to study what is the, what is the millennium all about? How are those, what's the, what are the characteristics of the millennium? So what will the, the millennium really be like? Will life be different? Is it just going to be like today? The, the world that we live in, obviously not because a righteous king will be on the earth ruling and reigning. What about those saved out of the tribulation who entered the millennium? Okay, they have a commandment that's going to be very similar to what Adam had and Noah had. Go forth and replenish the earth. So when you study that, and we got into this in a pretty deep dive study uh, last summer about the rebellion of Satan between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. But that's why he tells Adam and Eve, go forth and replenish the earth. Because Satan rebelled. The earth was without form and void. It set desolate with what could have been billions and billions of years until the Holy Spirit brewed and started putting it all back together again. And that's the seven days of recreation. And when you study that deeply, uh, your key verse there is Isaiah 45, 18, that God did not make it tohu, as you find it in Genesis 1, 2. It's tohu vabohu, confused. God's not the author of confusion. So what was going on? And Jeremiah 4 has the judgment that the Lord had on the earth during that time when there was no Adam yet, Adam wasn't created yet, and there was no light yet because light's created, remember, after that, let light be. So anyway, the people that enter, go through the tribulation, and they enter the millennium, they're going to have that same commandment as Adam and Noah. It's almost like a reset on the earth. Go forth, replenish. What about people that are born during the millennium? They're going to be born into a world that... They've never known Jesus not ruling and reigning. So very different than you and I. What about the church? You know, what are we doing during the millennium? How does a rebellion against Jesus occur again at the end of the millennium? You know, if you think about that, these people will have lived in a world that all they have known is a righteous king ruling and reigning on the earth from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And yet at the end, Satan is loosed for a season and deceives the whole world, and they, and they form a rebellion against Jesus again. It's, it's wild when you think about it. I, can't, I know you're sitting there going, how could you do that? How could you be in a world that Jesus has been ruling and reigning from the throne of David in Jerusalem, and yet at the end of it, you decide to rebel against the king that created you to begin with? It's, it sounds crazy, but that's what happens. So Revelation 20 
is the only place that declares the length of Jesus' rule on the earth. So the millennium, we call it the millennium because it means a thousand years. That's what that phrase means. But there's only one place in the entire Bible that where Jesus declares it will be, or the Lord declares it will be a thousand years, and that's in Revelation chapter 20. And it's for six verses in a row. Oh, thank you, Mason. Appreciate the, uh, the change in the lights here. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 1. You can just turn them off if you, if you need to. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Revelation 20, verse 1. And I, I'm fighting through it. All right. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. So remember the key to the bottomless pit. Remember it was given to a different angel back in chapter 9 of Revelation where the demonic locust hordes are released from the earth. And that's in Revelation 9, verse 1. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. So remember, that authority was given to him. It's not something that he, that he has naturally. He doesn't have the authority to go take it. So here, another angel comes down, a good guy, is coming down from heaven, having that key to the bottomless pit. So the authority is taken back and given back to the good guys at this point. In verse 2, And he laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Okay, so starting in verse 2, there's six straight verses where God declares it's a thousand years. You don't find that anywhere else in the Bible. So it's, it's six times that God declares this time that Jesus will rule and reign that's been promised all the way back from the beginning. It's going to be a thousand years. Okay, in verse 3, And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So notice that there's a, a book out there. All of you know the author and what's, what was going on then. But there's that book out there uh, that tries to make Jesus and Satan equals, like they were brothers or something. So just notice it doesn't take Jesus to lock Satan up because they are not equals. They are not co-equals of any kind. It takes an angel to lock him up, probably a powerful angel. It could just be a normal angel. It doesn't, it doesn't say in the Bible, but it just takes an angel. He just grabs Satan and throws him in to the bottomless pit. Okay, so Satan is bound for a thousand years. And you, know, you and I right now, we live in a world that you are, you are in a world that is very much under the sway of the wicked one from 1 John. And so living in a world where Satan is bound and not roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour will be something very, very different than where we are today. It's going to be a time where the tempter is gone. And it's, you can't even really imagine what that's going to be like. But he's obviously not bound right now. And, and anyone that tries to convince you that Jesus is ruling right now, um, just think about that simple statement alone. Okay, that Satan is, he is not bound right now. Jesus is not ruling on the earth right now. Okay, we're going to see this reference to a thousand years six times in a row in Revelation. Verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, and 7. And I, I find it just fascinating that when you put those together, it's 6,000 years, or the history of man, like we talked about a little bit last time. It could be a subtle reference to the 6,000 years of human history before Jesus rules and reigns. And then the rest of the seventh day, right? Just like recreation, where, where God rested for one day. Remember what one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So there's six references to a thousand years where Jesus will rule and reign, but it's interesting that there are 6,000 years in human history. You can find that in other spots of the Bible until Jesus establishes the kingdom. So that's pretty interesting. Okay, Satan being bound and thrown into the bottomless pit, it's prophesied all the way back in Isaiah 14. Now, you know this is a reference to Satan because the false prophet and the Antichrist are not thrown ever into the bottomless pit. They skip it all together. They go straight into the lake of fire, okay, at the, at the end when Jesus comes back. 
And so this, you know, has to be a reference to Satan. In Isaiah 14, verse 9, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. And all they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and thy noise of thy vials. The worm is spread under thee, and the worm cover thee. Now, if you, I've mentioned this before, but there's that, that man who has the testimony about going to hell for 23 minutes. Um, look him up. I think it's uh, Bill Weiss or something like that on YouTube. But it's a, it's a fascinating testimony. And what he goes through, he goes through the scripture of everywhere it talks about the bottomless pit and physically what it's like. And then he, and he tells you his experience, literally how he saw that and experienced that. And it's really interesting, but this is one of the verses that he talks about. The worm is spread under thee and the worm cover thee. How the people down there, the, the worms like these maggots were just all over them all the time. And they wouldn't ever go away. So he, he talked about that in his testimony. So I find that fascinating. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Now remember, Jesus is the bright and morning star. Lucifer is the son of the morning. So he's created by Jesus. Uh, he probably was Jesus' personal angel at some point because we know from Ezekiel 28 that he was the anointed cherub that covered the throne. And so when you think about that in Ezekiel 28, he also led worship in heaven. When you think about from that perspective, then the rebellion, imagine the one closest to Jesus being the very one that led the rebellion at the, in the very beginning. It, it probably really, really... I'm sure it hurt the Lord greatly. Uh, but how art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? The people in the bottomless pit even say, how art thou also become weak as we? So when you're down there, remember uh, the Bible says the Lord is your strength. Well, you're not with the Lord then. And that's one of uh, Bill's comments in his testimony is he had no strength to move any muscle in his body at all. That he was down there, he couldn't move anything. He couldn't breathe um, there is no water because Jesus is the living water. It's everything that Jesus is, is not there. And so just think about that from that perspective. Physically, everything you enjoy on this earth as a result of Jesus isn't there. Okay, in verse 13, for thou hast said in thine heart. Now, these are the five I will statements from Lucifer. Okay, before he was Hasatan or Satan, he was Lucifer. He had a name as, a, as an anointed cherub. But these were the five I will statements that led to his rebellion. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. And that lie is the same lie that he tried to perpetrate on Adam and Eve. Remember, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will be, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. It's the same lie in the new age today. It's the same lie a lot of, of cults try to press on to people that they'll be like God. They can become enlightened, right? You hear that phrase a lot. Okay, so those were the five I will statements where pride set in his heart to the point that led his rebellion against God. And Ezekiel 28 is the other the other section of scripture that gives you a lot of details about that. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? So when you think about verse 7, Isaiah 14, verse 7, that made the world as a wilderness... And destroyed the cities thereof. Uh, Satan has not made the world of a, as a wilderness yet. That happened between Genesis 1 1 and 1 2. That's a hint to that. But the last verse that opened not the house of his prisoners, it's a direct contradiction to what Jesus did at his first arrival. He did open the prison to them that are bound. And of course, it's because Satan always wants to be like the Most High, it's, everything he does is a counterfeit. Remember from Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, 
He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. See, he did that. And God is saying in verse Isaiah 14, verse 7, Satan, you tried to do that, but you couldn't. And those to open the house of the prisoners that were bound, he probably was trying to open the prison doors for those, the fallen angels that rebelled against God, that are from 2 Peter 3 and, and Jude are in the bottomless pit in chains of darkness right now. He probably tried to open that prison. Okay, in verse 4 here in Revelation 20, I saw thrones and they set upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. See, during the tribulation, everyone that is a Christ follower gets beheaded or killed somehow. Okay, they are, they are beheaded for the Lord. And you see that back in the, in the fifth seal. Remember the martyrs are under the altar crying for vengeance to Jesus. And he, and of course, the Lord knows that all of those that will accept him haven't done that yet. And so he's waiting still. And that's why the, the whole tribulation has to play out. But they're martyred for the word of God, for Jesus and the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon it, their foreheads or in their hands. Remember, that's, that's a counterfeit mark from the Passover. Remember, Jesus had it had them put it as a memorial between their eyes or on their right hand all the way back in Exodus. That's why the enemy tries to counterfeit that with his mark. So you can be marked by Jesus and the blood of the lamb, or you can be marked by a counterfeit, which is Satan's, that leads to eternal hell and separation from Jesus. Okay, neither had received the mark. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So, so Jesus obviously resurrects those that are beheaded for him. Okay, you see this in verse 4 in Revelation 20, and I saw thrones. Okay, what are these thrones? Well, you go back to Daniel 7, verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Okay, the word cast down when you and I hear of something being cast down, you kind of think of you know, tearing something down, bringing it to the ground, getting rid of it. This word in the Hebrew actually means to be placed. So these thrones are set up. They're placed properly in their order, and they set with the Ancient of Days. And who's that? That's obviously the Lord. That's Jesus. The Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow. Okay, so judgment will be given to us. Remember in Revelation 20, verse 4, and they set upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Okay, the judgment, what judgment? 1 Corinthians 6, 3 says, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? You know, it's amazing when you actually study a lot of that, how God's commandment to the church is if you have an issue in the church, Take it to the one that is least esteemed in the church and let he or she judge the matter between it. Don't go, God even says, don't go to an, an unrighteous court of apostates and pagans and let them judge the matter. Go to people in the church that you trust and let them judge it between the, the believers. So I find that really interesting because most of the church acts totally contrary to that, right? You have, you have an issue or and you go to people that are not a part of the church to try to take care of it or, or get counsel from them on it. It's just the wrong way of going about things. You should, you should keep it within the confines of the body. Okay, but we're going to judge angels. That's pretty powerful. Luke 22, verses 29 and 30, And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Isn't it amazing too in, in Matthew, is it Matthew uh, chapter 12 or 7? I, I don't remember offhand, but uh, where Jesus, he starts off with uh, judge not and, and everyone likes to stop there and nobody reads the rest of the chapter of, of well, actually he's empowered you to make judgments and it's not to, he doesn't meet it in terms of judging someone in a critical way where you start to gossip about them and all of that kind of stuff. 
He gives you discernment because you need to make judgments in your life, right? You need to, every single day when you meet people and do things for work and you're out in the world and you have to make, you make decisions based on judgments in your mind. It's not, we have such a negative connotation with the word judge. But I find it amazing that at the end of this, he's actually going to give us the power to judge on thrones, almost like a courtroom setting. But he's going to empower you to judge angels and to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. That's amazing. In verse 5, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Okay, the rest of the dead. Now, remember the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, verse 23 and 24. And in hell, remember the whole story, just a little bit of the backstory. Remember Lazarus was the beggar by the, by the gate. The rich man would walk by him every single day and look at him and not give him anything that he was capable of sharing with him. And Lazarus, not the Lazarus that's resurrected from the dead, this is a different Lazarus, but he's sitting there and he's pleading for anything. Uh, He's probably very sick. If you read the whole story, you could probably actually pick up that he may have been the rich man's son when you really dig into it, which puts a whole spin on the story uh, that maybe you haven't thought of before. But remember, they both die. Lazarus Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom in the bottomless pit. Remember, the Lord promised Abram that he would inherit a piece of heaven, and the bottomless pit being that side that he called Abraham's bosom. And that's a part of Abraham's inheritance. And so the people that were in Christ before he was resurrected went to that side of the bottomless pit. And there's this great chasm between them, remember? And the rich man was on the bad side, being in torment, and he was just begging for a thirst of water, a drip of water. And he has a whole conversation with Abraham. It's amazing. You can learn so much about the afterlife just in Luke 16, because this guy has memories. He knows what he should have done to be saved. He knows what his, his household that's still alive needs to do so they don't end up where he is. He has full memory of how he treated Lazarus, everything. And there's Lazarus on the good side being cared for in paradise. So the rich man, and he in hell, he lift up his eyes being in torment and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Look at how he's, he is trying to boss Lazarus around still. Okay, send Lazarus over. He's my servant. I'm in torment. Send him over. He needs to give me some water. And he's, his whole perspective is so hardened still of really where his stature is at this moment that he has no authority now. He's not in a place to, to direct Lazarus around. Okay, but he has needs. He has, obviously has physical needs. He can see. He's got memory. Okay, so the, the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. So in verse 5 in Revelation 20, what's going on there? When Jesus was resurrected, you see this only in one place in Matthew. He's the, he fulfills the feast of the first fruits. All of those in Abraham's bosom are cleared out with him. And he resurrects them, not to their resurrected body, but brings them up out of the grave and takes them to heaven with him, where that's where they are now. The people on the bad side are still there. So this rich man, he's still there right now to this day waiting for that drip of water. Still. And it's been almost 2,000 years. Okay, at the end of the millennium, after the 1,000 years are up, there is a second resurrection of the dead. Okay, the dead live not again until then. So that rich man will be resurrected at the end of the thousand years to stand before the white throne judgment, which if you're saved, if you're in Christ here, that's not, you're not appointed to that throne, that judgment. Uh, you have a, an appointment with the Bema seat, which is different. That's where you get your rewards from Jesus for faithful service to the king. Okay, so the thousand years, he's going to wait there until the rapture happens, the Antichrist rises to power, makes the covenant with Israel, seven years go by, we return, Jesus sets up the kingdom, and a thousand year, years later, then he will be resurrected, the dead, 
and then cast into the lake of fire, the final place for all eternity for them. Okay, in the white throne judgment, that's, that's in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Okay, in verse 6 here, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. So you can either, I think I've got this even later, but you can be born once and die twice, or, or be born twice and die once. That's the difference. Okay, when you're born into this world, you can choose to be born again and then only die once. Or you can be born in this world and not be born again, reject Jesus, and die twice. That's the bottom line. It's just that simple. Okay, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such the second death. That's the second death is the white throne. Hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So if you are in Jesus, just keep in mind, death, hell, and the grave have no power or authority or dominion over you. They have nothing over you. Okay, O death, where is thy sting? Remember in Psalms? So it has no power over you. In verse 7, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So, Satan's loosed for a little season after the thousand years. So a thousand years are expired. We don't know how long that is. So after the thousand years, is it another 75-day interval? Is it another thousand years? Is it a hundred years? We don't know. The Bible doesn't, doesn't give us that answer. But he's loosed for a season. And he goes out and deceives the nations. And they all gather around Jerusalem to try to take out Jesus again. It sounds absolutely insane, right? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how on earth would they be on the earth watching Jesus rule and reign, judging sin immediately, and yet think we're going to take up arms against him again? It's, it's wild, but it happens. Okay, and what's this Gog and Magog? Well, in Ezekiel 38, you see a war that's prophetic, that's, that's on the horizon, that's the Gog and Magog war. Magog being the furthest, most northern parts north of Israel. So if you go on a map to Jerusalem and you go straight north, you hit Russia. Okay, they are, they are the ancient uh, people that set up what's modern-day Russia. Gog is kind of a mystery, but it's a demon title, which is why he's still around at the end of the age, at the end of the thousand years. And those people, uh, Magog, are going to live in that same territory. And so they're going to gather the, the armies of the world again. But Gog is a demon title, and it, it shows up nowhere else in the Bible until you get to Ezekiel 38, in our English Bible that we have today. If you go and you study it out of the Septuagint, it shows up beforehand. Because it's, it's often, God, God does not often introduce somebody just out of the blue. Right? Usually there's some kind of background about who they are or something. Uh, in the Septuagint is where you find where Gog is in Amos 7 verse 1. And if you read it in the English Bible, the verse really kind of makes no sense almost. It talks about the king's mowing and, and grasshoppers and all kinds of stuff. And you're like, what, Lord, what are you saying? But in Amos 7 verse 1 in the Septuagint, it has quite a different connotation of that verse. Now, if you don't know what the Septuagint is, 300 years before Christ walked the earth, um, the best Greek scholars, the 70 best Greek scholars, came together and translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And that's the Septuagint Bible. That's Sept means 70, so it's, it's the, the 70 guys that did this. And this is what they have in Amos 7.1. Thus has the Lord God showed me, and behold, a swarm of locusts coming from the east, and behold, one caterpillar, King Gog. And so there he is all the way back in Amos 7 verse 1, and then you see him in Ezekiel 38, then you see him at the end of Revelation in chapter 20 here, at the end of the millennium. So clearly Gog is not just a normal king. Uh, he's not living for thousands of years like that, doing things on the earth. Maybe he's a fallen angel of some sort. It's not really clear, but all we know is that it's not a man. Okay, It's not a human. Uh, Gog is a very demonic title for this entity. In Ezekiel 38, what's going on is 
after Psalms 83, uh, where the nations surrounding Israel attack Israel and try to wipe them off the map, God intervenes, uh, puts the, the, the attack down, and then they expand territorially. Then Ezekiel 38 happens with Gog and Magog, where they come down, Russia, Turkey, Iran, they kind of form a, a union, and they come to plunder Israel. They come to take their riches, and you can find that in Ezekiel 38. That's, that's a prophetic war on the horizon. But the demonic locusts, remember, are back in Revelation 9, and these locusts uh, in Amos 7, 1 in the Septuagint, that's what it's referencing. So they have a king, Gog. Now, you also know from Proverbs that the locusts go forth and they have no king. The normal locusts that you see out in Oklahoma that had the shells are on the ground, uh, that's what God's referring to. So when you see in Revelation that the locusts have a king, you know they're not. He's talking about something very different. Okay, in verse 9 here, and they went up onto the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. That's Jerusalem, always. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So the beloved city is Jerusalem. His enemies surround Jerusalem. And this time, Jesus doesn't even use the word of his mouth. Remember in Armageddon, he uses his word. The Father sends fire from heaven to consume his enemies. He just takes them off, off the earth. In Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so then finally Satan is put into the lake of fire, never to be released again. That's when that happens. And notice the false prophet and the Antichrist are there. They're still being tormented, still sitting there, still under penalty of forever being separated from Jesus. And so there's that that event. Okay, the beast and false prophet... They get thrown in the lake of fire when Jesus returns. Remember, they skip the bottomless pit. And that's in Revelation 19, verse 20. You can go back and reference that. Okay, so we just ran through 10 verses, kind of covering the millennium a little bit. And last time, we looked at more than 75 verses that promised the establishment of that kingdom, of Jesus' kingdom. And we just barely scratched the surface, honestly. Trying to pack this into a couple messages is, it's a lot. It's a lot to pack in there. But in Luke 1, 31 through 33, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. These are the promises that we went through last time. Starting in 2 Samuel 7. And when Jesus rules in the millennium, he's going to change everything, including the landscape. Remember we looked at when he steps foot on, Mount, on the Mount of Olives, and it cleaves so that the river in the millennial temple can go out toward the east. And that's all in Zechariah 14, verse 4. He's waiting for the pressure of a foot there, that mountain. Okay, look at Isaiah 2, verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the last day that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. So all nations, all nations during the millennium are going to flow unto the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Remember we looked at that verse last time. It's also quoted in Micah. And it's the very verse that the UN put on their statues outside the United Nations. But they cut off all of the front end of it of he shall judge among the nations. Uh, they didn't like that part with Jesus rebuking many people and judging. They want, they want, just a, they want a false peace, uh, just like 2 Thessalonians 5 says. But in the millennium, there will be no more war. Look at Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. O Zion, that bring us good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bring us good tidings. 
Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. And now anywhere you see the arm of the Lord, it's a reference to Jesus. It's the arm of the Father that's in the flesh, the Son of God. Okay, so anywhere you see that in the Bible, that's what the Lord's talking about. And his work before him, oh, with a strong hand, and his arm will rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Now, we've talked about this a lot here at New City, about the five crowns that are promised to you in the Bible for faithful service of doing something. God gives five crowns as an example. He gives a lot of rewards to the overcomer from Revelation 2 and 3. And all of those rewards, are prob- that's probably not an all-inclusive list. Again, I think the Lord is just giving us a hint of, of what he has on the other side for us so that we have a reason to press on. You have a reason and something to look forward to. It's not, it's not to sit on a cloud with a harp and just hang out for eternity. You've got something very, very special waiting for you on the other side of this. Jesus has a crown for you. He's got a white stone with a new name on it, a white garment. He wants to get, let you rule over the nations. He wants to make you a pillar in his, in his temple forever. All these things are to those that, that love him and won't back away from serving him. Okay, his reward is with him. <clears throat> he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Okay, so the millennium, it's going to be very different. And this is not an all-inclusive list in the Bible, but I picked some, some verses here that just show what are some characteristics of that time frame during the thousand years. What is it going to be like? Well, the government will be upon his shoulders from Isaiah 9-6. We all know that verse. His kingdom will not be destroyed from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Remember uh, in Daniel 7 the beasts that come up. We'll look at the very end of verse 14. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom which shall not be destroyed. So despite the attacks on it, it will not be destroyed. It's an everlasting kingdom. We'll judge the world and angels from 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 6. We looked at those verses a little earlier in the message. He will put down all rule and all enemies under his feet from 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 25. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Remember, we just talked about that. He fulfilled that. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For me, he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Okay, so he's going to do that. He will give us power over the nations. In Revelation 2, 26 through 27, you see this. To him will I give power over the nations, to him that is an overcomer. So if you're an overcomer from 1 John, then you have a reward for you, waiting. Power over the nations. The curse on plant life and the ground is reversed. So remember in Genesis 3, verse 17, the curse. And unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife (laughs) and hast eaten of the tree, Sometimes it's good to listen to your wife, okay? In Adam's case, it was not good to listen to your wife. It was very bad. Uh, it, it turned out very poorly. But I know a lot of you are sitting there and go, oh, I finally don't have to listen to my wife. But no, you need, to, you need to be in agreement with your wife about a lot of things, but hopefully you're leading her in the right way. Okay, and has eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Well, I, I have not worked many days on a farm. Uh, the few in my life, it's probably less than five, I will admit that. The few, I helped a guy in Kansas City on his, on his ranch for a few days. It was the worst few days of my life, I'll just be honest. I hated every bit of it. It was, it was miserable. I couldn't breathe for like three days. I was so congested. Uh, I hauled hay around. I helped him take care of horses, all kinds of stuff. It was miserable. So I I got the smallest taste of what Genesis 3.17 is about, in sorrow. In sorrow, cursed is the ground for thy sake. Um, It's farming is hard. So if any of you are farmers, God bless you. Uh, We need you. Yeah, I mean, Mason, out in Crescent, the 
the lots of farming going on. I've seen the above ground. Ca- the cabbage is looking great. Hopefully, you can bring some to the church at some point. Uh, the curse is then reversed in Isaiah 32, verse 15. Until the Spirit be poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest. So the very ground in Israel is going to be different, okay, at this point. And that's confirmed in Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 2. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and the, and the blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the ex- excellency of our God. Okay, animals will not attack each other from Isaiah 11. You can learn a lot about the millennium and what it's about just from Isaiah 11, verses 6 and 7. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. The kid is a, is a, baby, a baby goat. So I think if you put a baby goat next to a leopard right now, it would be a very grisly outcome, right? Same with a wolf dwelling with the lambs. You don't want a wolf around the flock. That's, and God uses that analogy for the, in the New Testament, right, as the church. Remember in the church of Ephesus, when I leave, surely grievous wolves will come into the congregation. He talks about that. And the flock uh, being consumed by some of them. Okay, and the, and the calf and the young lion and the, and the fatling together, and the little children shall lead them. So imagine having a child in the millennium, young, you know, six-year-old, out there playing with lions and wolves and sheep and goats and calves and walking them around and these big lions walking next to the kid. And it's, it's exactly how God intended all along that we would have dominion over the animals and they're created for us, not us for them. So it's going to go back to that in the millennium. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So carnivores are no more. They, they don't eat meat any longer, these animals. They, they turn to eating grass of the field and straw, and it's going to be exactly what it was supposed to be in the garden all along. From Isaiah 11, verse 8, the next verse, you can see there's no more poisonous snakes, and the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the cockatrice den. And the cockatrice den, is a, it's a poisonous snake, so a child's going to put his hand in there, grab the snake, and just pull it out and, and play with it, and it's not going to be poisonous, it's not going to bite the kid, nothing about that. Now, it's interesting, uh, in physics, in science, what they did was they took poisonous snakes and they put them in a, a, a chamber, like a vacuum chamber, but they, they increased the oxygen level to about double what it is today in our saturation, in our environment, and they found the snakes were no longer poisonous then, just by increasing oxygen. And if you go back to b- the before the flood, that's probably what the atmosphere was like before God parted the, the heavens and ripped open the atmosphere and poured rain out like he did. So it could have something to do with the atmosphere going back to a pre-Noah time. It may have something to do with that. Who knows? We'll see. This is kind of speculation, but... The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. In Isaiah 11, verse 9, the next verse. They shall not hurt or destroy, nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's confirmed in Habakkuk 2, verse 14. So right now, remember what Jesus said? When you take the gospel to the ends of the earth, then the end shall come. Okay, so the earth, the earth right now is not full of the knowledge of the Lord. I think we all know that, but it will be in the millennium. The moon and sun will be changed from Isaiah 24, verses 21 through 23. After the millennium, there's not even a a need for the sun any longer. There will be a pure language from Zephaniah 3, 8 through 9. Just skip down a little bit, for then I will turn to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. So whatever language is on the earth during the millennium, it's going to be the same language. There's no more scattering like at the Tower of Babel. Remember when the Lord scattered them, confused their language. Ethiopia is going to bring a gift to the Messiah from Acts 8 and Zephaniah 3. We looked at that last time. It's probably the mercy seat. From Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, 
there are no Jewish unbelievers, apparently. I put a question mark because it, it kind of alludes to that. But apparently there's no more, no more Jewish believers. And Jeremiah, go all the way down to look at the very end of these verses. Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them. And he's speaking of Israel in that time. Make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's going to be during the millennium. The heathen will perish out of his land from Psalms 10, 15 through 16. He will make Israel a strong nation that, that he rules over from Micah 4, 6 through 7. Israel's land will be divided by tribe with the holy district kind of cut out as the land for the prince of Israel, which is David from Ezekiel 48, 1 through 35. The millennium temple is only open on the Sabbath and the new moons, which is fascinating. So for some reason, we're going back to these Levitical practices and sacrifices in the millennium, and the temple is only open on two events, the new moon and the Sabbath day. And that's in Ezekiel 46, 1 through 3. You can read that. The millennium temple floor plan starts in Ezekiel 40. And in 47, verse 1, it even talks about how Behold, the waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. Okay, eastward. For the forefront of the house shall stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. So the temple's going to face east toward the Mount of Olives. Remember, that's where Jesus descended when he was crucified. He descended the Mount of Olives. Well, in Zechariah 14, he splits it when he comes back. So it's, it has a, basically, he, he makes a valley a chasm in it, so this water coming out of the millennial temple can go through the east, through that mountain. It's amazing. The age of accountability is about 100 years old. Not about, it's what it says. But death and sin are apparently still around for some point. Isaiah 65 is another great chapter on the millennium. Verse 20, there shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die in 100 years old. So if you make it to live 100 years, you're still a child in the millennium. That's how, that's how different life is then for what world they're growing up in. But the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Now, it's just a hint, and you've got to take this to the Lord on your own and, and study the scriptures from Acts 17, 11. But it sounds like what he's saying is if you don't accept him by the age of 100, there's some kind of curse put on you at that point. Okay, the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Sin is existent but judged immediately from Isaiah 11 again. We looked at that earlier. Uh, note that this is not eternity yet. Okay, so we're not to eternity. This is still life on earth, but with Jesus ruling. Sin is judged immediately. Uh, longevity of life is restored. Death apparently is only for unbelieving Gentiles in Isaiah 65. When you go read that chapter, remember there's no unbelieving Jew from Jeremiah 31. Apparently, death is only for unbelieving Gentiles. Nations must send representatives at the feast days, otherwise they don't get rain. That's in Zechariah 14. Remember the Lord prophesied that Egypt will not receive rain because they didn't send representatives on a feast day. And he warns them, and then it creates famines in their land, and etc. Isaiah 16, verse 5, remember, and in mercy shall the throne be established and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hastening righteousness. Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. That's where we're heading. That's where we're going towards. That's what you and I have to look forward to is the time when a righteous, holy king sits and judges the earth in righteousness ruling, and you and I are going to have missions. We're going to have people to minister to, people that survive the tribulation that we need to go and help rebuild cities. Uh, you, may, you may get the, the commandment to, okay, go back over to Europe or Spain or wherever and help rebuild this nation. Maybe that's your, what's assigned to you. You may, you may uh, hopefully it's not Lawton, but you may get Lawton. Uh, that's, I mean, I'm ha I could go back there for the Lord. I'm fine with that, if that's where he wants me to go. But Lawton's a great city. Don't, I'm not bashing it, uh, kind of. It's very safe, a uh, very, very great place. But you can, you, can either, uh, you can either be resurrected to life with the Messiah, 
or to eternal separation and judgment at the end of the millennium. That's, that's the, the, the main issue if you're not saved. You've got to get born again now. Okay, in John 5, 25 through 26, really good, we're going to read John 5, 25 through 30, and then close here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. The hour is coming that we're going to hear the voice of God as the sound of a trumpet. And we're going to be raptured out of here. And when you study prophecy and you know what our future beholds, that at any moment we could go home. Okay, Jesus is going to catch you doing something when he calls us home. The question is, what will you be doing? And how will your Messiah find you? What are you going to be doing with your life? When you stand before the king, that's the only thing that matters is what did you do in this life for his kingdom, for the spirit, for God? Not what you did in the flesh. All of that from 1 Corinthians 3 is burned away like fire. It's wood, hay, stubble. And it, it's, it's gone forever. It has no reward. It has no meaning brought into the next life. But that's the life that you're going to live forever. And it's dependent on what you do for the Lord right now. So you can be saved and just like 1 Corinthians 3 says, if you do nothing for him and everything that you did is wood, hay, stubble, you shall be saved as yet so as by fire, but it all burns away. And when, you, and when you stand before him, you don't want that to be your fate, where, what, you have, what you have done to be meaningless. You want it to stand for the kingdom and so when you understand that at any moment we could hear that trumpet to call us home, it should give you a sense of urgency to live now for him, not to cower in fear, you know, not to kick your feet up on the desk and say, well, the rapture's coming, I guess I don't have to do anything. That's not the point. The point is to be busy about his kingdom. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And shall come forth. Isn't it amazing that Jesus just speaks and the very dead are raised up? I mean, I just read this morning in John the whole event about Lazarus. All he did was speak, and Lazarus came out of the grave and came forth. His word is that powerful. It's what's holding every single atom together as we know right now. Every atom from physics, they finally found it, sound waves that's holding every single molecule together. His voice just changes everything. And so when you get into the word of God, allow his voice to change your life. And when you do that, you will start to draw so close to him, you'll start to have conversations with him during the day. You'll, you'll hear from him clearly on what he wants you to do. Okay, everybody in the grave will hear his voice and just stand up. And shall come forth and they that have done good unto the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can't of mine own self do nothing as I hear. I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Remember seven times in the book of Revelation, remember he that hath an ear, let him hear. Okay, we'll be raised again to new life. It's guaranteed by Jesus. We will live in glory for all eternity from John 6, 39 through 40. And the promise is again stated by Jesus a few verses down. John 6, 43 through 44. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me to draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, so we've got, we have to be about the king's business. Uh, you can study, it's amazing in the Bible. There's probably a lot of things about the millennium that we didn't touch on this morning. But the world's going to be very different. You're going to live in a world for a thousand years with Christ that is far different than the world that we're living in right now. So build your faith, get into the word of God, uh, surrender to him. If you're holding on to anything in your life, you've got to surrender at the feet of Jesus. And write it out on a sheet of paper, just like Hezekiah did when he was surrounded by the Syrian army. Write it out, lay that paper before the Lord, and let him take it off of you. It's just that simple. And if, you're, if you are here today or if you're listening and you're not saved, you're not born again, 
please, please, it is so simple. Get into the ark before the door closes. It's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is so simple. You do that, you are born again to resurrected life in the future, and it's guaranteed by Jesus. And he gives you the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians, as an earnest deposit on your life. That earnest deposit is one so that he promises to purchase you. It's just like putting an earnest deposit on a piece of property. It's the same concept. Okay, if you need anything, come see us. Uh, Send us an email, whatever, reach out. We're around. So thank you, guys. We'll close in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we we praise your name. Lord, we thank you that we have much to look forward to in the kingdom. We thank you for laying out in your word some characteristics of that reign on the earth that we have to look forward to that, Lord, will be so different than where we are today. And, Lord, we thank you for it. We love you. We praise you. Be with us. Give each one of us clarity in our life on what it is exactly you would have of us in the days ahead. We thank you for it. Let your word be a lamp to our feet and a guide in this life right now. Speak to us, and Lord, let your word not return void. We love you, Lord. Be with us as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.